Good morning. Welcome to this uh, joint service between the Gathering Church and Lentz Baptist Church. My name is Matthew Cunningham. I'm uh, one of the pastors at the Gathering. It's exciting for us all to be here. I just two, uh, maybe one, another announcement just to keep it going. <laughs> Why not? So this, uh, in, in two weeks from now, on March 12th, uh, we have the opportunity to send our brother and sister, uh, Oshawa and Sharon Hawthorne, out uh, to be church, uh, helping the revitalization effort at Central Bible Church. Uh, so Central Bible has offered Oshawa a position as a missionary in residence, uh, where he's got opportunities to continue to work with refugees and also help the revitalization effort there. And so we are excited to continue to support them in their work here in Portland. That's that tall drink of water standing right there is Oshawa. So uh, that's... We were going to send him out next week, but he's preaching at Central Bible next week. So we'll send him out on the 12th. So encourage them. We're grateful for their work and service. Grateful to be in continued partnership with them in the city here. So I used to say that uh, middle school were the best years of my life. That the glory days of 7th and 8th grade won't be relived again and everything else is simply chasing the past. And part of the reason for this was that I was about this tall and about 70 pounds less. So I was like this walking giraffe through the halls of Big Bear Middle School, and I was quite the athlete for about a year and a half. But there's another reason, and there's another aspect of being a teenager that's not as grandiose, that was totally new to me as a teenager. And it's this cultural and societal rite of passage that I had not experienced up to the point of 7th and 8th grade. And this rite of passage, these cultural pillars that everyone must walk through is the middle school dance. If things aren't already awkward enough as a teenager, there's this added expectation that we're somehow supposed to woo the other gender. And so my memory of middle school dances is something like all the girls dancing in the middle of the school gym and every male lining the outside of the gym just with these sweaty palms, all while wearing their dad's loafers, and then suddenly one from among us, like a documentary from Planet Earth or something, (laughs) ventures out and walks solo and heads towards the females. Like David going out to the Philistines or something like this. And all of Israel simply cowering behind him like, we are not worthy. (laughs) Like a seal that needs to venture from one ice pad to another but must cross through the killer whale infested waters. This brave young soul recapitulated all of our manhood. Our dance rites of passage for a teenager. But this morning in our text, we are in Matthew chapter 3 verses 13 to 17, and as a church, we've been going through Matthew's gospel for about six weeks, and in our text this morning, we're going to see a different kind of dance. In our text this morning, we're going to get a glimpse into a dance that is really at the heart of reality, a look at a dance that gives us a look into the center of things, the way things really are. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to read to us verses 13 to 17, and then we'll get into our text this morning. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for our time here together. Lord, we come every week to the preaching of the word as those who are desperate and hungry and needing to be fed. Lord, you'll tell us in our text next week that man cannot live by bread alone, but from every word that flows from the mouth of God. That all of our desires, all of our cravings, all of our longings are ultimately not satisfied in the things of this world, but are satisfied in the word of God, are satisfied in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we come again as beggars in need of free bread. Lord, we believe as the saints have over the ages that when the word of God is preached, we are actually hearing the word of God itself. So we long for it, Lord, and we ask for your help and blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we've got two points this morning. It's a two-point sermon. Point one is the dance, and point two is the cost. Point one is the dance, point two is the cost. We should start from the outset here, though, and look who is present here at this baptismal scene as Jesus is coming out of the water. There's three characters besides John that are present there. There's the voice from heaven, there's the sun in the water, and there's the descending spirit. And this is one of the most explicit places in the scriptures that give us a picture of God existing in three persons. The historic teaching of the church is not that God is one and at times appears in different forms. But the sort of teaching of the church is that God is one existing equally in three persons. For example, you may have heard the Trinity, that God is three, taught by way of analogy something like this, that God is three forms of water, ice, liquid, and vapor. It sounds intriguing enough, but unfortunately, that's heresy. (laughs) That's what's known as modalism. It's saying that God appears in different ways at different times. Rather, the biblical and historic understanding of the Trinity is that God is one, existing in three co-equal and co-substantial beings. Co-equal means that they are all equally God. The Father is not more God than the Son, or the Father is not more God than the Spirit. And co-substantial means that all three of them are of the same substance. So you hear in the word substantial, substance. They're all three of the same stuff, which means they're all three made up of the same godness as the other ones. They're all equally God, and they all have all the attributes or all the stuff that makes God, God, equally. So we get this picture 
then, here at the baptism of Jesus, of all three persons of the Godhead present. So why is this important to us? Well, first, let's remember what Matthew is doing in his gospel. Matthew has told us that Jesus Christ is the true son of David. That's chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew's told us that Jesus Christ is the true son of David who will sit on the throne forever. And he is the true seed of Abraham who will bless all the nations. But not only that, Jesus is the true Israel. He's the true son of God who exiled down to Egypt and was faithful in exile coming up out of Egypt for our sake. And next week we will see that Jesus is the true and better Adam and the true and better Israel who withstood the test of temptation and did so faithfully. Adam was tested in the garden where apparently the lions and the lamb lied down together and he failed. But Jesus was tested in the wilderness of beasts and dryness and he succeeded. He was faithful for our sake. So part of what we need to realize here in Matthew's gospel is that he's showing us Jesus Christ, in a sense, is renewing the world as we know it. He's bringing the kingdom of God to bear on this world now. And Jesus is doing so as a substitute for us. All of the Old Testament, in a sense you could say, is being replayed in the first seven chapters of Matthew. Jesus is representing humanity in a way that is utterly faithful. He's the true and faithful Davidic king. He's the true and faithful seed of Abraham. He's the true and faithful son of God. He's the true and faithful Israelite. He's the true and faithful second Adam. For Jesus to save us at the cross and to die as a substitute in our place, he must first walk the path of faithful obedience. Because if he only died his death as a substitute for us, but not his entire life, then we would just be saved from the wrath of God against sin. If he simply died for us in our place without having first lived our life for us, then he simply would be removing the wrath of God from us, and in a sense you could say we would have a right standing with God. But if Jesus Christ faithfully fulfills all that it is to be a human being, to faithfully be the true Israelite, to faithfully be humanity, then he's that as a substitute for us so that all the blessings of God that belong to Jesus are now ours. He doesn't just save us from the wrath to come. He gives us the life that Jesus himself deserves and earned for us and for our sake. So as you see him, as you see Jesus, the son of God, walking through these first chapters of Matthew, see him being faithful for your sake, doing the things that you can't do, obeying in the desert when you would have failed yourself. In the very opening pages of the scriptures, we read this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I was in a class last week, and the professor said, hey, turn to Genesis chapter 1, and you would be surprised how long it took him to flip to Genesis chapter 1. I mean, he was going like this, and then like this, and like this. I'm just like, hey, turn it over and go like that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said. Three characters are present in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The Father, the Spirit, 
and the Word. The Father, the Spirit hovering over the face of the deep, and the Word of God in verse 3. And John will later tell us his first words of his gospel was that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At the creation of the cosmos as we know it, all three persons appear to us. Genesis will tell us that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, which kind of makes me think of something like Michael J. Fox would do on his hoverboard or something, but it's not, it's not quite like that. Because the Hebrew is much more nuanced than that. The Hebrew says fluttered. Fluttered. The same kind of verb is used in other places to talk of a mother bird fluttering over her young. So much so that in the Targums, which is an Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, it actually translates that the, that the Spirit of God hovered over the, fluttered over the face of the deep like a dove. So at the beginning of the world, all three are present. The Father, the Son is the Word, and the Spirit as a dove. Therefore, it is only fitting that at the recreation of the cosmos, all three persons would be present again. This is the first time in this text, in Matthew's Gospel, that we see Jesus as an adult. This, in fact, is the first act that begins his ministry. Further, this is only one of two times that the Father appears and speaks from heaven in Matthew's Gospel. And both times he says the same thing. He speaks here, and he'll speak at the transfiguration, and he'll say, this is my beloved son. That is the one piece of testimony that the father wants the world to know about his relationship to his son. This is my beloved son. This is the son in whom is all my delight. This is the son who is the center of my affection, the object of my affection, even. It's the only thing, the main thing that God the father wants us to know about his relationship to his son. He's beloved. He is loved by the Father. So the point I'm trying to press on us is the massive significance this is in redemptive history. But what does it mean for us? And further, why did I open this sermon talking about a middle school dance? Because in this text, we get a glimpse into the interior life of what God is like. Listen to how one author, C.S. Lewis, who was a professor of literature in Oxford in the middle part of the last century, says, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing, nor a static thing. Not even just one person, but God is a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life a kind of drama, and if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up from the very center of reality. Another author put it like this. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit glorify each other. At the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. The persons within God exult and commune with and defer to one another. At the heart of the triune God is a dance, it says. So what in the world does this mean? First, it means that God is not impersonal. 
It means that God is not impersonal. For all eternity, God existed within himself in total happiness. In all of eternity, God existed in self-giving love, total adoration within himself. God being triune means this. It means that God did not need to create the world because he needed anything. God didn't create the world because he was lonely and needed you and I to fill his empty love tank. No, God was eternally happy before there was even time. This means that God is not impersonal. It means that at the center of things, at the very heart of reality, God is not personal. And it means that if that's true, then you and I were ultimately created for relationships. Because if at the center of things, at the center of reality is a triune God who exists for all eternity in perfect loving relationship with himself of no outside need, There's no want of anything that's outside himself. There is such perfect love. Imagine the most perfect marriage that you can think of and then multiply that by about 10 million. Perfect love and harmony. No need for another being outside of itself. That is a kind of love that existed within God. The father is eternally saying to the son, this is my beloved son. When we get this picture in Matthew chapter 3, it's not something new that the Father has decided he should start saying to the Son. It's something that the Father has been saying to the Son for all of eternity. This is my beloved Son. But there is a problem. If God was not triune, but simply an individual, he would have created the world to satisfy a longing within himself. His call to glorify me would be from a selfish disposition of need. And my friends, this is the heart of individualism in our culture. The heart, the mantra, the gospel of the culture around us as we know it is that you will find fulfillment through individualism. It says that if you use others to satisfy your own needs, then and only then will you find self-fulfillment. Or even further, anything in society or culture or relationships that prevents you from being the exact image of yourself that you want to be is seen as intolerant and even bigotry. Even the notion that Christians would hold to something like marriage laws is seen as totally... uh, uh, unloving and hateful and unkind. The thought that maybe some kind of human flourishing would come through the restriction of freedoms is absolutely absurd to our culture. It's absolutely absurd to our culture to think that any kind of restricting of a freedom could actually lead to self-fulfillment. But isn't we, this morning we read from God's holy word and we read the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments aren't God just being a curmudgeon and looking down on us and saying, you know what, I'm going to make your life a little harder today. The Ten Commandments are God coming down to us and saying, if you put the right restrictions in your life, this is the path to human flourishing. If you put the right restrictions in your life, like remain married, honoring your parents, not stealing, not murdering, these are the kinds of restrictions that if you put into your life will lead to actual human flourishing. But we simply don't see it that way as a culture and as a society. The message of our culture is be exactly what you want to be and anyone that stops you from being that, you should get that person out of your life. That person is intolerant and that person is damaging to you.
any restraint on our personal freedom is seen as utterly oppressive. You know, there was a New York Times article recently that said this. Says, if there is no soul, he didn't say if, he said, there is no soul, no heaven, no hell. 30,000 galaxies, over 13 billion years old, with trillions of stars and trillions of planets. The author concludes, you are not special. You are just a piece of decaying matter in this dying world. Who you are and everything you do will have no significance in the end. If this is true, then of course, love and the greatest things that we experience in life are nothing more than simple chemical reactions in our brain. If this is true, if materialism is all we know, then even the loving relationships that we experience in our life aren't real. They're just certain chemical firings in our brain that at the end of things, when history's all said and done with, it won't matter if you were the most altruistic person in the world, you lived your life for the sake of others, or you were Adolf Hitler. It simply won't matter if this world is all there is. But if at the center of things there is a triune God who exists in self-giving love, then it has massive implications for all of our lives. Jesus said in John 17, he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. The father does not seek his own glory. This is part of the dance. Imagine if there was 10 people in a room or 20 people in a room or 100 people in a room and they were all going to decide to dance together and one of them kept saying, no, I'm going to be the center. I'm going to be in the middle. And the other one said, no, I'm going to be in the middle. No, I'm going to be in the middle. No, I'm going to be in the middle. There would never be this kind of dance, but if each of them agreed to serve the other and honor the other and love the other and defer to the other, then you have what's, what we mean by this Trinitarian dance this constant deference to the other person, this constant self-giving love to the other person. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I don't glorify myself. I glorify the Father. And the second half of the verse says, glorify your Son, that the Son might glorify you. They don't seek their own glory, but they seek the glory of the other, and they are the ones who are eternally happy. They don't seek their own glory. They seek the glory of the other, and they are the ones that are truly, eternally happy. The limiting of choices, the limiting of freedoms, the limiting of self-expression is not the path to bondage. It is the path to true joy, and we know that it's true because it's true within the Godhead himself. Lose your life that you might find it is exactly what God has been doing for all eternity. When you make... When you glorify another and you make much of who they are, that's what I take glorify to mean, to make much of someone else, to make them look good, to promote them, to seek their honor above your honor. When you glorify another and you make much of who they are because you're enraptured by their beauty, that's what it means to glorify God. And yet you ask, the Bible says all the time that we're supposed to glorify God. If God has no need of us, then why does he constantly tell us that we're to glorify him? Is this some kind of like, I don't know what this is supposed to mean. I don't know, like a bait and switch or like a, I don't know. Should have thought through that one a little bit more. 
if it's true that God has no need of us, but don't you see that the call to glorify God is in fact an invitation to the dance? To orbit around something else that is not yourself. To be welcomed into relationship with this triune God. See, to love God like this is to love God for who he actually is. My friends, our struggle is always for us to love God for his blessing. Our struggle is to always love God for his money. Our temptation is to love God that he might pour things out in our lives. But still, this is a turned-in motive. We still are loving God for ourselves. But to truly love God is to simply love God because he is beautiful. To truly love God is to simply love him and serve him because of who he actually is. Practically, my friends, what does this mean for our prayer lives? It means that our prayer lives can't simply be about petitions and requests. Is your prayer life marked primarily by petitions and requests? Or is your prayer life marked by a delight to be with God? Do you delight to simply worship him, to adore him, to long for more of his presence, not because you're necessarily going to get anything out of it, but simply because he's God. Have you prayed like Jacob's prayed? Have you prayed, God, I won't let go of you till I see your glory, till you bless me? Have you prayed like Moses has prayed? God passed before me. I don't care if it smites me. I need to be consumed by your glory. What does your prayer life look like? My friends, if God had no need of you, then why did he create the world? God's love for himself, exhibited within the three persons, was so strong, it was so pure, and so powerful, that that love overflowed in self-giving nature. That love overflowed to make the world as we know it. And the longing of the Father and the Son and the Spirit was that he might make mankind so that we might enjoy the relationship that he has had within himself for all eternity. He made us so that we could know him. He made us for our joy. And our joy, our greatest delight, is to know this triune God, to be in relationship with him. And that is the invitation of the gospel. The invitation of the gospel is that we might be brought back to God, that we might be reconciled back to them so that we can enjoy the inner life that God has within himself. That we, I dare say, it almost sounds heretical, we could be part of the dance that God has within himself. It's an invitation to the dance. We might partake of the divine nature. He had no need of you and yet he loved you, and so he made you. When we are enamored with his beauty and glory, the profound, the effects in our life are profound, but too quickly we fall back into loving others for ourselves' sake. Just this weekend, my wife and I were planning the activities for the weekend, and, and a lot of different pieces had to come together to make the different family plans happen and so on. And, and a lot of the responsibility fell on me. A lot of the tasks were only tasks that I could do. And, you know, oftentimes it's the other way around in a family where a lot of the tasks fall on my wife. And most of the time, all the tasks fall on my wife. But I saw this thing inside of me where I was fine to serve my wife and my family, but not until I realized that my effort wasn't overtly 
appreciate it. So there came this moment on Saturday when I said, I'm expected to do all this, and I don't even sense that you guys are thankful for it. What was the functional control of my heart in that moment? In that moment, I was serving my family for my own sake. I was trying to serve my family and trying to love so that I might be loved in return. I was seeking glory through service. But at the center of things is a divine dance. And for there to truly be a divine dance, the others have to lay down their rights and their preferences for the sake of the other. My friends, we're never going to come to grips with a God like this as isolated individuals. We're never going to come to grips with this, a God like this as isolated individuals. How could we come to know a God that is a community apart from community? How could we come to know a God that exists eternally in self-giving love just with me, myself, and my Bible? It's not possible. God gave us a church. He gave us a group of individuals that we would covenant together with and live the Christian life together so that we as a community, we as a people, might come to know what this God is actually like. Look, we've said this several times, but if you're at Lentz, this is the first time you've ever heard me say it, so I've never said this before. We ought not be surprised how many one another's and how many opportunities the New Testament gives us to forgive, to bear one another's burdens, to carry one another's response, uh, in, um, troubles, and so on. The Bible tells us to forgive some 40-something times in the New Testament alone. Just forgive one another. And yet, the first time we're slighted, the first time someone speaks ill of us, the first time someone does something that they, we didn't expect them to do, we're so enraged as if we didn't expect this to happen. And yet the New Testament is full of these kinds of commands. The life of the New Testament is one of a messy church. Think about the the letters that the apostles were writing to churches. The life in the New Testament churches was a messy one. But my friends, it's in community. It's as we're trying to be like the triune God and taking our lives and pattering it after what he's shown us in self-giving love that we truly can be made like him. As his spirit is upon us in the church, we can truly be sanctified and become like him. And we're invited into this great dance. But this great dance comes at a great cost, which is our second point, the cost. My friends, we should first, as we look at this text, simply be amazed that Jesus was baptized at all. John had predicted in the previous text that Jesus would be the baptizer with water and fire. But John never thought that Jesus himself would be the subject of the waters of baptism. Jesus totally shocked John when he said, I need you to baptize me. In a sense, you could say that Jesus' first act as an adult, his first miracle as an adult even, was to go down into the waters of baptism. And that's a miracle, because you could say Jesus' first act was a miracle of his own humility. His first act was to go down. His first act was down into the water. And in this next sermon, as our brother Chris shares with us, you'll see Satan 
tempt Jesus to take the crown without the cross. He will tempt our Lord to the mountaintop without the valley, and Jesus will have nothing of it. Because his life, his first act in his ministry is to go down into the waters. And all of his ministry throughout the Gospel of Matthew will be down, down, down. The way of humility. The first act of the Spirit even is to come down. This is the triune God. This is one who has this perfect relationship within the Godhead. And because of the relationship that Jesus has with the Father for all eternity, he's able to come down to us in self-giving love. But these are mysterious waters. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? John was shocked that Jesus wanted to be baptized. He says in verse 14, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me to be baptized? In other words, he makes crystal clear John does, that Jesus did not need this baptism. He does not need to repent. Jesus does not have any sins to confess of. So why are you here, John is saying? Why have you shown up to be baptized? Well, he answers him in verse 15. He gives a one-sentence answer, and I think it's massively important. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It is fitting. That's what he's doing. What's fitting? The fulfilling of all righteousness is fitting. Apparently, Jesus saw his entire life as the fulfillment of all righteousness. It's a theme I introduced to us at the beginning of the sermon. And the fact that he's participating in a baptism of repentance, even though he had no sins to repent of, is part of him showing that the righteousness he wanted to fulfill was a righteousness not required of himself, but of every sinful man. Isaiah 53 was Jesus' life mission. Verse 11 says of Isaiah 53, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. By the knowledge shall the righteous one, Jesus is the righteous one, may my servant make many to be accounted righteous. The righteous one, Jesus, is fulfilling all righteousness, even going down into the waters of baptism to unite with us, my friends. He is uniting with sinners in a remarkable and profound and tangible and even ordinary way. He unites with us in every way. He even goes into the waters of baptism for us to show the depths, to show the degree to which he identifies with us, to show the lengths that he's willing to go to redeem us. The Son of God? The Son of God is in the waters of baptism? The Son of God who never sinned? The Son of God who upholds the universe by the word of his power? That son of God is in the place of sinners. That son of God says, John, you need to baptize me. John, you need to place me in the grave of sinners because it is fitting that I might fulfill all righteousness. My friends, do you see the lengths that he goes 
to identify with you and me. The Holy One of God in the place of sinners. But this will be his life. From the very first act as an adult, he's identifying with sinners. And all of his life and all of his ministry will be continually to identify with sinners. My friends, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not ashamed of us. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. That's the kind of great and profound love that he has for us. Well, there's one more peculiar thing as we move to a close here. As we understand the cost, the cost of us being welcomed into this divine dance, there are two figures in the Father's pronouncement here. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. That a Hebrew reader would just immediately understand. One is the messianic warrior, the anointed one. And the other is this peculiar figure in Isaiah known as the suffering servant. We learn of the messianic king, the messianic anointed one of God in several places, but one of the most prominent places is Psalm 2. And it's a text that was read for us this morning. Let me read part of Psalm 2 to you, because this is what the father is quoting. He says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth shall be your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the inauguration of the messianic king. He says in Psalm 2, today I have begotten you. There's a sense in which Jesus is saying and the father is saying that this is the inauguration of the messianic king. This is the king that was promised in 2 Samuel 7, that would sit on the throne of David forever. This is, the, this is the messianic king that was promised in Psalm 2. And at the baptism is when the father says, today is the day. Now is the moment that the messianic king, the son of God, is coming to reign. But the second half. We learn of the suffering servant in Psalm four, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. Beloved, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Suffering servant says, my servant in whom my soul delights. The son of God in whom my soul delights. More of this suffering servant. Isaiah 53 says, this is the suffering servant still, the same kind of mysterious figure in Isaiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought his peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. My friends, when the heavens are rent open, it says in Mark's gospel that the heavens are torn open and the father speaks. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
In Jesus Christ, we have the messianic king who is the suffering servant. The messianic king, he will break the rods of iron, he will bring forth justice, and he will do so in utter weakness. He will bring righteousness to the land. He will triumph over all of his enemies, and he will do so through suffering. The messianic king, the rightful heir to the throne of David, will be crushed for our iniquities. This is the great mystery of Jesus, the Son of God. This is the answer to this mysterious figure in Isaiah. The suffering servant is the messianic king. The suffering servant is the very Son of God. And my friends, he brings to us salvation and hope and life and does so through the way of weakness. And if it's true for him, it must be true for us. The way to live is through dying. The way up is the way down. The way to the crown is through the cross. The way to the mountaintop is always through the valley. But we know, my friends, we know that if it's true in the ultimate sense for the Son of God, it will always be true for us. My friends, do you know Do you know that the blessing from heaven is upon you now? Do you know that as the Father opened the heavens and said to the Son, this is my beloved Son, so the Father, because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for us, he lived our life, fulfilling every aspect of righteousness, and on his last day, he was crucified for our sake so that the wrath of God might be assuaged and we could have right standing with God. Now the Spirit falls on the church at Pentecost, just like the Spirit fell on Jesus at his baptism, and the voice of heaven says to you, my people, God's people, I am well pleased. You are the beloved of God. Now, you are brought back into the fold The temptation that the devil always brings to us is to say, if. Next week, as we go to the temptation passages, Satan is constantly tempting Jesus. If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. But the pronouncement of the father is you are my beloved son. My friends, as the temptations of life comes, when suffering comes, when trial comes, when the facts don't match the promises, we are tempted to say we are not the beloved child of God. But my friends, John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 12, to as many believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. And so we are. Let us pray. Our Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for the good word that comes down from heaven because of the finished work of our Savior, the Messianic King, who is the suffering servant. We pray that the Spirit would fall afresh on us now and would engage our hearts and would apply to our hearts the truth of the gospel that we might behold your beauty and glory yet again, Lord. We thank you, God, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my friends, we now have the opportunity to come to the Lord's table and take the Lord's Supper. And the table this morning is open to all who repent of their sins and trust Jesus Christ alone for all the forgiveness of your sins. 
If you've been baptized, if that describes you and you're a guest here, uh, feel free to join and partake of the Lord's Supper with us. We'll come up row by row. There's two tables uh, at the front here. And you can take the element, the broken body, the broken bread and the wine of the new covenant and take it back to your seat. And I'll come up when we all have the elements and lead us in uh, the Lord's Supper together.